0: G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show, episode number 49. I am your host, Jacob Andre, and today I'm talking to Derek Hansen. So if you'd like to know more about improving running performance and resiliency, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacob Andre, and for over a decade, I've trained everyone from children to elite athletes to move better, feel better, and perform better. While a thorough understanding of fitness and nutrition is vital, underpinning that is mindset and I've come to discover just how important it is. I've worked with literally thousands of people, and more often than not, it's the ones who win the mind game who succeed in the big game. So how do they do it? This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. G'day and welcome to the episode Prelude with Derek Hansen. Now, if you have any interest in running, you are going to absolutely love this episode. If you would like to improve your running performance and resiliency, and you have Any inkling towards running, whether you like running, you absolutely love running and you do it as a sport, or if you play a sport and running is included in it, such as Australian rules football, gridiron, soccer, netball, and so on, then you are going to get heaps out of this episode with one of the world's best running mechanics coaches, Derek Hansen. Now, in this episode, some of my biggest takeaways, which you are going to take out of this, are the trends in physical development and how they are changing why long-distance runners need to sprint and be powerful, why the traditional off-season is disappearing, why speed training is the best strength training, what running properly looks like, and how you can work with Derek and get the same mentoring as coaches working with players worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, this episode is brought to you today by Running Mechanics. It is Derek's Level 1 and 2 Running Foundation's Running Mechanics foundations course in level one you are going to learn the science and language of running the mechanics of running and workout planning programming and implementation then in level two you are going to learn all about the running sprinting based hamstring rtp model application to other lower body injuries and upper body injuries moving on to our show our review of the week now, if you would like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, head on over to Apple Podcasts, search for the Mind Your Body Show, scroll to the bottom, leave us a five-star review and a rating. And those five-star reviews, which we see and love, we are going to read out our top one for the week. This one's a little bit different today. This one's a little bit more of a testimonial on our actual training programs. This comes from Jessica Perris. It's been a long time since I've felt athletically strong, still so much work, so much to work on, a lot of imbalances and weaknesses, which makes it even more exciting. Trust the process. Thank you, the Mind Your Body Show. Okay, introducing Derek Hansen. Now, Derek is an international sports performance consultant that has been working with athletes all ages and abilities in speed, strength and power sports since 1988. His coaching career started in track and field, providing instruction to sprinters of all ages, eventually working with collegiate sprinters, hurdlers and jumpers. He worked as the head strength and conditioning coach for Simon Fraser University for 14 years, the first non-US member of the NCAA. He also serves as a performance consultant to numerous professional teams in the NFL, NBA, MLS and NHL as well as major NCAA Division I programs throughout North America, specializing in speed development, strategic programming, strategic performance planning, return to competition protocols, and neuromuscular electrical stimulation programming. You are going to absolutely love this episode with Derek if you have any interest or desire to run a little bit more efficiently or faster. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Derek, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Jacob. Uh, very nice to meet
0: you. It's great to be shooting across the globe over to Vancouver and Canada. What have we interrupted on your afternoon there while it's morning here?
1: Um, well, it's it's kind of an interesting day. It's It's been, we had a rather hot and dry summer and now we're into fall and it's already started to rain torrentially. So it's, I guess it's good. We need the rain, but at the same time, it's a little depressing. So
0: <laughs> It sounds really beautiful vancouver and the pictures and the movies and the the things that i see on the internet or the tv make it look absolutely phenomenal is it just as good as it is in all the pictures that i see
1: yeah i would say so i think if you were to ask people what um what they their impressions of vancouver were would definitely be around like nature and being close to the ocean and being close to Uh, Like you can go skiing 30 minutes, you know, from where I live and in the winter time. And there's a lot of options for that. There's definitely a lot of Australians that uh, work and live up in uh, Whistler, which is about 90 minutes from Vancouver. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's it's an area that's very desirable. And certainly, you know, the, the real estate prices reflect that, you know, kind of like Sydney probably, but um, yeah, it's, it's a, I've lived here most of my life. So It's been a very enjoyable place and it's, you know, it's growing. And I think, um, you know, I would say if I didn't live here, I'd definitely want to visit. That's for sure.
0: Well, anyone that knows me knows that I have an absolute craving to go to Canada and I've been wanting to go to Canada for pretty much all my life. Coming from a place like Darwin where it's flat and hot, the idea of mountains and cold just seems really intriguing to me and interesting. And I would absolutely love it. I've been to the US four times and just never been able to get up that little bit higher on the globe to get to Canada. But it's actually my intention to go, it wasn't my intention to go there for Christmas 2022 and have a white Christmas COVID permitting. We'll see what happens.
1: Yeah. And it, I mean, if, if you want to come for a white Christmas, you might have to go up to like the mountains and all that, but certainly uh, most of the time it doesn't really snow a lot in Vancouver, the rest of Canada. Absolutely. You can find snow pretty easily. But I think that's why people like it here. It's because it's not too cold. You know, it's a little more uh, moderate climate. And, and so, you know, it's nice when it snows for the kids, but usually it's a, it's a pain in the butt. So,
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like a very active place where you could do all sorts of outdoor activities. So one of the questions I like to ask is, how do you mind your body? So I'm really interested to hear this from you living in Canada.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very easy to do something like say run all year round, you know, uh, it was a little hotter this summer. And sometimes, you know, with forest fires, it gets a little smoky. Uh, It wasn't too bad in Vancouver this year, although the rest of the province was on fire. Um, But I think, you know, for people who run, you can do it all year round. So we don't have the snow, and it doesn't get too hot. So it's a very popular place for people just to run, hike, um, do stuff like paddling stuff in the water, um, doing, uh, you know, obviously the winter sports skiing. And, and so it's, it, if you're an outdoors person, it's a very nice place to be. And there's a lot of options for you. So that's probably one of the best ways for people to stay fit is just to, you know, plan a day trip and go do something and, and hike for the whole day and, and bike as well. So I think it's, it's, it's a very desirable place for people who are fit and you don't mess. Nec- you don't necessarily see the same, I would say obesity rates as as maybe other parts of North America. Um, so that's, that's good. It's generally healthy. People tend to live a little bit longer here and there's, there's a lot of diversity and the, even the food is pretty good. I think the restaurants are pretty good, tends to be more of a Pacific rim flavor in terms of, um, you know, Asian cuisine. And so I think generally, if you want to live in a place where you feel like, you know, you can be healthy and uh, have a lot of options, it's probably a pretty good place.
0: That sounds like my cup of tea, but what is your favorite physical activity to do?
1: I would say because I was a track and field athlete, I would say I I rely and lean heavily on doing some, some type of running, whether it's intervals or Hills, or we go to the track and I take my kids and we all go on sprints and. So I think that's my primary means of, of staying in shape, but, you know, I'll, you know, I have a weight room in in my home here where i also doubles as my sort of whatever workspace. Um, and I'll find other things to do, uh, like along the lines of weightlifting, I have a stationary bike. We have an indoor curve manual treadmill that we've been using a lot more, especially during the pandemic. So I would say running is the primary activity. My wife was a runner, competitive runner. So we both kind of gravitate towards that and it's, it's kind of served us well, you know, I'll get the odd injury here and there, but usually we're pretty good uh, about staying healthy.
0: So for anyone who is watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see that you are sitting in your weight room and you've got some pretty cool stuff behind you there. I really like your library, your book of your shelves of books there. That's actually
1: vinyl. That's oh, is it? all oh, the records. Yeah. Yeah. I've lived. So I've, that's my, my vinyl collection from the seventies and eighties. And then I've added some more pieces in here and there. So I'll sit in here and listen to vinyl and lift weights or do whatever. So it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an obsession, you know, because, you know, you kind of gravitate towards, you know, the stuff that you used to do when you are young and, you know, everything's so digital now it's nice to have something that's a bit analog. So, yeah. So we'll, we'll listen to a lot of, uh, I will. My kids don't care for it, but I'll try and pull out some old records and listen to them.
0: What was the most recent record that you watched that listened to?
1: I listened to. uh, Well, one of the clients that I had is um, Benicio del Toro. He's an actor. And so I have like posters of him around here. Um, So he'll send me records. And so he sent me everything from like uh, some Rolling Stones, like he likes the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and and so I've, I've been listening to some of that stuff that he sent me. So like the white album, Beatles white album. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I never owned that one, but yeah. So
0: that's so, that's so cool. And it's bordered there by a rock climbing wall. Is that an actual, does that work? Yeah, we have
1: it? a little, so I've some walls in here for my kids. Now they're unfortunately they're a lot bigger now, so they can't really make use of it, but I figured out oh, I'll just leave it. But it certainly was a, a good activity wall to keep the kids uh active and, and doing stuff and climbing and get them strong so yeah so now now they've graduated past rock climbing and now we're uh lifting weights in here so
0: your <laughs> kids were literally climbing the walls I, I literally
1: that. yeah yeah <laughs> i can't remember where i got the idea but i'm like yeah yeah let's do it so
0: <laughs> yeah that's so cool um so you mentioned that you were a track athlete and so was your wife what was yes. your distance
1: Uh, Usually like sprinting short, like 100, 200. But I ended up getting into long jump and triple jump. um, Because I had a decent jumping ability. And I did just managed to go a little farther with those particular events. And uh, yeah, so I, a lot of jumping events, which, which was good in that you didn't have to run too far. But uh, the other part of it is was was it's very high impact. So you know i'd always have sore knees and hips and back and, and you know so that was the downside there but you know i i managed to uh, have a decent university career and a little bit beyond that and then you know i think i'll probably need some sort of hip replacement or something like that at some point but i've i've managed to stay in shape
0: that's good i was actually going to ask how are your knees now after all that you you seem like you're still pretty active
1: yeah, I would say I'm doing pretty good considering, you know, some of the friends that I have not so well, but, um, I, maybe I just got out of it at the right time. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I can always remember, like, you could say you were the fittest ever when you were competing as an athlete, but at the same time, you're probably the sorest ever, right. You know, you're constantly with, you know, ice bags on your knees and, and things like that. So it was, uh, was kind of a double-edged sword where you're like, yes, I can perform very well, but I'm in pain all the time. So.
0: So what was life like for you growing up? You obviously, you mentioned that you grew up in Vancouver and you still live there. I'm interested in the Derek story and how you ended up where you are now.
1: I mean, luckily I had parents that were very uh, focused on getting us involved in sports. So we played all types of sports and and you know what you know i don't know how old you are jacob but you know i was you know grew up in like the 70s and 80s so back then you would leave the house and go explore the neighborhood and whether you had a skateboard a bicycle or you just ran around you would leave in the morning like if if it was during summer you'd leave in the morning and your parents wouldn't know where the heck you were and then you'd show up you know right after the sun went down and they're like okay right Uh, we don't necessarily do that with our kids nowadays. Like we, everything's very scheduled and monitored. So you know where they are at every, every given time. And if they have a cell phone, you're tracking them constantly. So I think just by virtue of the fact that we're really active, like every day, um, I think, and then even at school, we do all the sports. And then whenever there was a break, a recess or lunch break, we're like, okay, we're going to go play whatever soccer, American football. Uh, baseball whatever and there was always something going on I can't I can't really think of a time when you know we weren't doing something physical maybe the weather would restrict it some somewhat but even you know uh, physical I remember physical education was always very competitive and um, you couldn't wait to do it right you couldn't wait to and the, and the, the the teachers were pretty skilled at you know, you know, getting you to play certain games or do do certain things. So I, I just remember it being very, very active, very physical. And, um, you know, and then in between, we kind of went to school and learned a few things, right. And I would say that started in elementary school at a very young age, competing in track, competing in soccer, and other things. And then all the way through high school, and even in university, there was always this theme of, always competing in athletics and doing the school thing as a side gig, right? Um, you know, you wanted to do well academically, but at the same time I wasn't looking forward to going to math class and, you know, doing my homework. I was looking forward to getting that done so I could go play sports.
0: Yeah. So I'm 38 and I was born in 1983. So I definitely remember the eighties and we, it's very similar. We would run around a lot when we are at my cousin's house and, in the suburbs but we lived on a rural block of two acres and we had two horses so it was very active um it was always out and about very rarely indoors uh and i i've seen that it changed i'm not claiming that i'm an old person here and i've seen change since the 50s but you know, I've seen things change over the years, and particularly around about 2005, uh, at a interstate level institute of sport that I worked at, yep. I noticed that there was a big shift in what the young people, so teenagers, were coming in and being able to do. And they just physically couldn't hold their body in a plank position and support their own body weight, let alone be able to then do a push up, for example. And then forget about squats, and if you're forgetting about squats, forget about deadlifts. Like there's just no hope. There's just no movement competency There's no control have you noticed a similar thing i would imagine you would in canada
1: yeah i think you what you're seeing is if you there's like a disappearance of the middle class right so you have kids that don't really exercise or play sports um, but they might be academically focused or on video games or whatever and then you have the athletes who really that's what they do but now it's become overly specific so it's I'm just going to be a basketball player from grade two onwards or an ice hockey player or, and they specialize very early. And so you see deficits in their movement patterns based on the fact that they might only be good at what's in their sport. Um, And I see that all the time. And, And I even know people who've, who work in the NBA, who see kids coming up and they're assessing them and they, they notice that they have a lot of overuse injuries and they do lack Basic movement skills, even though they might be very good at basketball, um, but but you know that's that's one of the things I look at with with my work is what's causing a lot of the injuries in pro sport, and a lot of it is rooting back to, I would say, lack of comprehensive development when they're young.
0: Mm, so tell me, I'm really interested in this now. Uh, what specifically you do with your role?
1: Um, I would say everything from I call it more return to play. I'm not a, I'm not a medical professional, but it's involved in the rehab side. And, and I did a lot of work with hamstrings, hamstring strains and getting people back. Um, and then generally I brought in to help with, you know, speed development for teams, um, you know, whether it's a, an, an NFL, um, bas- NBA basketball, um i've done some work with ice hockey where we just work, focus on sprinting as it relates to you know the early acceleration in ice hockey and skating and i've and in the past i've worked with speed skating and, and a lot of other sports so most of the time i'm bringing in to help facilitate faster movement and as part of that whenever somebody's moving fast there's also a high risk so there's injuries involved and i'm i'm involved in helping bring them back as well
0: so there's a couple of different pathways that I want to head down here, and I want to be able to make sure that we hit all of them. So I'm going to start off with the the speed stuff because that is my jam. I absolutely love running mechanics. I love talking about it, and I, like I say to people, I could talk for a week underwater about this. Um, and so, tell me about like I'm specifically interested in what you said in regards to ice skating, speed skating, because as a PE teacher myself, I've taken you know living in Darwin where it's thirty plus degrees most days and uh, and at the moment it's up around 80 percent humidity it's our build-up season so it's very hot and humid so this time of year we go and do ice hockey as a sport and uh, it's only oh. a small rink it's only about a third of the size of an actual proper rink but how does that how does the speed stuff translate to what you see in ice skating
1: yeah i would say in the first the uh, first few strides maybe like three to four strides it's very similar if you look at And we've looked at pro athletes, uh, in the NHL and looked at how they start in their first three to four strides on the ice versus how they do it, say on a track in their running shoes. And it's very similar. So if you have somebody who's very good, um, at accelerating on the ice, typically you'll see them display good running mechanics or good acceleration mechanics. Whereas if you see somebody who has some problems, it'll be displayed in their dry land technique as well. So, We're trying to approach it from the point of view of, well, they skate a lot. um, So we're going to try a different way to work on their mechanics without having to create more overuse problems. Because in skating, ice skating, as you may know, um, there tends to be a lot of hip flexor and adductor or groin issues just because of the position and the stresses placed on those structures. So doing more skating is not really an option because, you know, they can have everything from abdominal strains. And I think sports hernias, you'll hear about that. And sometimes the the procedure to repair that's pretty drastic in terms of like basically cutting the entire sort of lower abdominal area and reattaching it. And it takes a while to recover from. So what we try to do is let's work on a sprint based approach where we can go outside, you know, get out of the rink, and focus on just proper acceleration mechanics and making sure that you know they involve their upper body and they have the right posture and then when they go back to the ice it's all intact and it transfers over very well so i think that's that's what i've been working on with a couple of teams lately is just let's have an off off off-season program that will make sure that all of those mechanics are intact so that when they return to the ice they've improved and they're probably at less risk of, in, of injury as well.
0: I understand this is very simplistic, but what would a typical session look like like for that?
1: I mean, a lot of the time with, with that type of sport, uh, there's enough studies to show that doing some sort of resisted acceleration is very good for transfer effect and simulating what may actually happen in a skating start. So we'll use everything from a sled pull, Maybe a hill, uphill run. Uh, sometimes we just use resistance bands on them and we just work on, and all the resistance does is really allow them to get into the proper posture and then start, you know, exercising the limb movements as part of that acceleration posture um, and just get the repetitions in. So we do a lot. I would say we do probably more, more resisted, a larger proportion of resisted runs than even, you know, a normal sprinter or just because it helps with that hockey posture and it slows things down. So there's not as much uh, elastic response in an ice skate on, on very hard ice, uh, just the way the, the skate is built. So it's a longer ground contact time. So by doing some resisted work, we kind of simulate that timing. So it's a little more familiar for the, the ice hockey player.
0: Is there much change in the positioning of the feet and the angle of the feet? Because I imagine, I don't know a lot about ice hockey, but the feet are slightly turned out more. Yeah, the there's a,
1: I would say there's, there's a little more external rotation, um, you know, for, but at the same time, you know, the hip still has to extend powerfully and, and you're still getting all of the benefits of those muscles below the waist being worked. You know, it's just a slight positioning difference and we don't really try to affect that as part of like, you know, we don't say turn your feet out and run. We just say run, right. Because then it gets a little weird and awkward. Uh, And we, and again, that, that external rotation is going to put more stress on the adductors and the pelvis anyway. So we try to get away from it. And when they get back to the ice, you know, they'll get enough of that work already.
0: Mm, So what are some of the major uh, components of running mechanics that you seem to be talking about more than anything else? I think,
1: I think it's going to be things like how you respond when you hit the ground so whether you're a sprinter or even like some of these long distance athletes, like the the marathon world record is, you know, getting below two hours, which means that the guy who's running it has to run probably about four minute, uh, you know, what is it, 430, 435 per mile, which is fast for one mile. Like I don't think you or I could come close to that for one mile. I would be thrilled if I could do a five minute mile, right? Um, but they're doing 26 miles in 430 each which means they're very fast it means they probably could run a single mile in like well under four minutes in like 350s which means they're also very fast when they run a quarter mile or you know they could probably run a sub 10, 11 second 100 meters um so you have to be fast and you have to be reactive and i guess they're trying to simulate that now with the shoes by making them more springy by putting carbon plates in the shoes and all these things But I think, you know, just based on the science, we know that if you're very elastic and very springy, when you hit the ground, you're going to react more powerfully and you're probably going to use less energy. If you're just, if you're just, uh, you know, rather than relying on the muscles to propel you, you just develop very springy elastic components in your lower leg and your feet. And so they're doing that now with the shoes a bit more, but I would say I focus a lot on, you know, plyometric activity Obviously the sprinting itself is very useful for developing elastic qualities. Um, you know, so that I think that's one of the things I've been focusing on more is that stiffness and that reactivity when the foot hits the ground.
0: You do much around the ankle joint and stuff, or is that just incorporated into the plyometrics and that um, yeah. the power top training that you're doing uh, in order to be able to get that minimal contact time?
1: Yeah, I would say we're not doing anything special to isolate it. It is, we might do single leg hops or double leg hops or bounding and those types of things. But I would say, you know, you you have to be careful with your progressions too, because if you do too much um, you know, there's, there seems to be a lot higher incidence in pro sports with Achilles ruptures these days. So I think I'm very, very <laughs> careful about how we progress. Although we want to get to some relatively high volumes, I want to take my time getting there and making sure people are strong and some, maybe we start on softer surfaces and then work to the harder surfaces. But I, I think that's always in the back of my mind is it's, it's a real double-edged sword. You obviously you want to get the volume in and you want to get the the repetitions in, but you have to have a sense of what your cutoff point is. Otherwise you're going to create wear and tear and degradation as well.
0: Mm, and so uh, I want to get to that. Now the return to play stuff and in particular, the hamstrings, because you mentioned the hamstrings. So what does that incorporate for you?
1: For me, it honestly, it's just a lot of short acceleration work and it might be anywhere from three to seven strides. But when you work on acceleration, you're not creating as much stretch in the hamstring. Your, your foot hits the ground with the knee bent. Um, so you're not you know, pulling with the hamstring, whereas at maximum velocity, you're much taller And this long lever comes down and hits the ground with your knee more straight, which puts more stress on the hamstring. So our, our early progression is a lot of short acceleration work to strengthen the hamstring safely, but not create massive stretch in that structure. Um, and I just find it works a lot better. Um, I, you know, work with, like I said, many sports, I have people working around the world using my, my methods and they're all reporting better returns, faster returns, and less incidence of re-injury, whereas a lot of people want to strengthen the hamstring in the gym, doing different techniques, eccentric work, and I've just found that that doesn't work as well. It's not as specific enough. It doesn't have the speed component, the velocity component, so you'll still still see some some recurrence of injury uh, if all you're trying to do is strengthen in the weight room.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you mentioned that there's people across the world who are using your methods. How do people um, come to work with you?
1: A lot of it is just remotely through consulting and just doing, you know, now everybody knows how to use Zoom. So, you know, it's easy enough to talk to somebody and then walk them through the process and show videos of how things should look. And, um, you know, and a lot of these people are pretty intelligent to begin with. So if they're working with Like I I had one fellow working out of uh, Germany with the top Bundesliga team. And, um, you know, he's very skilled too. And, uh, they have a lot of resources Uh, and he's working with players that are worth hundreds of millions of euros. So, you know, we're very careful at least to get people started, but certainly they, they, they get better the more they work with athletes and they understand how much volume the athlete needs and what the progression is. So, um, it is, it, it is. Easy enough to teach somebody how to do it. Um, and that was made pretty clear during COVID that you could do that and, and people feel more comfortable doing that now.
0: And how's all that washed out for you? Is it actually been a positive in the long run or is it still very difficult?
1: Um, I think it's been really positive. It, it's just giving me more time to work on different aspects of my skill set and my business. So, you know, converting everything to digital. I was kind of considering that already and I was already using Zoom and other tools before COVID hit. So I was a little bit more prepared. Um, I had I had been teaching in-person courses and I had been um, having some people help film what we did, so then I had a lot of resources to carry over to a digital format. So I was almost there and now that I'm fully there, I feel pretty comfortable doing it. and, I, and you know and, and, and the good thing is, Everybody else feels more comfortable doing it as well. So now, when somebody you know has to pay my fee, they don't go like, "Well, we're just doing it over Zoom. It's not worth the same amount." You know, you just try to build build in value to your product so that people go like, "Oh, okay, yeah, this is worth it." Um, so we'll see. I mean, I I'm I, I think what's going to happen is I'm just going to do a hybrid version of that where you know sometimes I'll see you in person and sometimes we'll do it over, uh, you know, a virtual sort of, uh, stream or something, some way of doing it, but everybody seems pretty relaxed about it now. And, and, and nobody complains about, you know, and the great thing is if you do something, uh, online, they, they tend to have it access to it forever. Whereas if I go out and work with you, you know, unless we film the whole thing, um, you know, you might have missed a few things, right? So with the educational courses, it works very well because people can do it at their own pace rather than showing up for, you know, two eight hour days on a weekend um, and then really probably forgetting, you know, 70% of the content. So now we give them all the content. And they can watch it as many times as they want, wherever on their phone at home or, you know, on vacation, they can watch it. So I think people are seeing the value of it right now.
0: Yes. And you You're a contributor in a very famous book, um, High Performance Training for Sports, which as soon as I saw that, I I recognized that book immediately. It's a very, very popular and amazing resource. Tell me about how that came about, that opportunity to contribute to that.
1: Yeah, that was a while. The first edition um, was a while ago because I can remember I was on a trip and I was writing the chapter like in 2012. And I don't think the book was re- released until 2014 or so. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, you know, the, one, of the, um, one of the contributors or I guess the person that organized it is David Joyce, um, who uh, works in the AFL. And um, so I, I can't remember how I ca- he came across me or vice versa, but they said, okay, we want you to do a chapter on speed and running mechanics and all that. So I put it together while I was working on another project And then when you do that, you kind of do it and you forget about it because it takes a while for them to, to get it all edited and done. And so two years later, like, oh, we finally have a book and, you know, it worked out quite well. And then they've done a second edition where um, they had some new contributors. And, and I think that was, I, I remember writing that probably prior to COVID, right? That chapter now it's out. So two years later, it's out and you're like, oh, okay. I almost forgot about that. But it's, it's nice to be involved in those projects because uh, they get a lot of attention and there's a lot of different people contributing um, to those final products.
0: In that second edition, I noticed that you have written a section on off-season. So tell me about off-season training.
1: Yeah, and and uh, the person that I wrote that with was uh, is also from Canada and she now works in the NBA for the Sacramento Kings. So they wanted basically an overview of uh, what an off season training program would look like for different sports. And so both of us have been involved in, in quite a few different sports. And I think it was just to offer a perspective of, of like, okay, uh, like uh, uh, traditional off seasons are disappearing because like I said before, there's this emphasis on specificity and doing the same sport all year round. So if you're working with uh, say a soccer player, like a top European soccer player, um, if they are playing on a team, you know, they're playing most of the year. And then if it's also a world cup year, um, they might be playing even more, um, because that's their off season that they have to play more. So I think we tried to write this showing people like, okay, you know, there's gotta be some compromise here where you can't necessarily be playing your sport year round. You have to kind of reset and get back to working individual qualities like strength and and endurance and speed and separating it out. Because what ends up happening is all you do, you play your sport. You don't get a chance to work on all these qualities and there may be a detraining effect and there may be an overtraining effect and overuse injuries are common. So I think we wanted to reestablish sort of some guidelines around, okay, let's get, let's get a proper off season done. But I think the off season is shrinking for every sport nowadays.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to buy that second edition and read that because we've I've just finished an off season. I work remotely with the Adelaide Pros in the AFLW uh, with a couple of girls, and they've just moved back to Adelaide to undertake their preseason. So they've done their off season. They've done a few weeks of preseason, and they're back there at the moment for preseason for the rest of the preseason until the season starts in uh, January, and then they'll be back. For the in-season with me, uh, but in that time we did a lot of work around running technique because I thought it was a great opportunity to be able to do that. And so I want to talk now about and use that as a segue into using linear speed training and transferring it across into team-based field sports like Australian rules football or soccer or um, American football, uh, those sorts of sports. How, how does it re- how does it relate?
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the obvious answer is always going to be like, all of these sports require you to run fast to be successful for the most part. So you kind of start there. And um, and what I found is that as people get into deeper into a sport, whether it's deeper in terms of like the level, like so you say you move up all the way to a full professional athlete, um, you tend to focus again more on tactical, technical issues around that sport and the basic physical training tends to fall to the wayside although there tends to be more of an emphasis on on weightlifting um, I would say that seems to be and maybe that's because you we've called people strength coaches or strength and conditioning coaches so they think strength is the most important thing and I'm not saying it isn't but what ends to fall to the wayside is working on quality running and quality sprinting and you know I think GPS was probably popularized in Australia for analyzing game movements, um, and time motion analysis. But what, what they found is that when you play a sport, like say you play rugby or AFL or NFL, you tend to run slower than you would if you didn't, if you were just working on sprint training. And there's reasons for that. It's the duration of the, the, the game. Uh, there's people in the way, um, and sometimes the acceleration distances aren't that long. So if you don't accelerate that far, you can't really get up to a higher speed. So what ends up happening is people aren't exposed to high speed running. You know, they may think it's fast, but an example would be in the NFL, they, they measure speeds, uh, the top speed. And I think last week, somebody reached 20 miles per hour, 20.5 miles per hour. And that was the fastest, right? But, you know, as we know, Usain Bolt's over 27 miles per hour, and even some of the women are at 24 or 25 miles per hour. So we have somebody in a sport running 20 miles per hour is, is definitely below their potential. So you're not actually making them faster. They're, they might be getting slower by playing their sport. So I think that's what I'm trying to focus on a lot of the time is we need to pull them out of the sport and get them to run faster. And then as they run and hit higher velocities, we know they put more force into the ground and if they put more force in the ground, it means they're getting a strength benefit too. So I think you're trying to get people to perform at as high a velocity as they can so that they have these sort of systemic benefits of, you know, better fitness, better running economy, um, you know, strength and power is improved. Because anybody I've worked with where I've just worked on linear speed, when they go back to get tested to be a, a, their test, their vertical jump, let's say, it's always higher. And they feel a little more powerful in the weight room. So I think it's a really good way to develop qualities, uh, other than just sprinting, whereas it doesn't really work the other way around. If you make somebody stronger in the weight room, sometimes they can get slower because they're stiffer and, you know, they just move slower in the weight room. So I think it's a really good foundational, um, sort of element to train linear speed. And then you can start branching off and working on agility, deceleration, strength work. But I, I I, kind of build all my programs around what is the running and sprinting going to look like and how do we fit in the most amount of work in that area and then start adding in other components uh, where we have time and energy.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of a research article I was reading recently, which talked about the fact that in um, football or soccer, that the number, the number one thing that preceded most, um, goal scoring options was a linear sprint or a vertical jump. And so incorporating that into training was hugely important because you can imagine, you know, athletes are sprinting towards the ball to be able to get onto the end of it and then either kick it or to vertical jump, jump up and header it into the goals.
1: Yeah. Cause you're, I mean, you're sprinting for a number of reasons. One is to obviously get to the ball you know, and play the ball or you're sprinting as a defender to, um, uh, you know, intercept the ball. Um, and then maybe you're sprinting into open space if you don't have the ball so that you can receive it. Right. So, um, it's a critical part of all sports. And I think it's kind of taken for granted. Like, uh, and I know I've heard of teams saying, well, we don't really focus on training speed. Uh, we just try to recruit and, and, uh, uh, get those players, that are naturally fast. Right. But at some point they're going to get slower if you're not training them properly, or they're going to get injured. So that's, that's kind of what I'm focusing on all is like, I'm the guy that goes in and says, you guys need to sprint more. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And some people do it and some people just go, Oh yeah, I know. And then they don't do it. So it's, it's seems to be a renewable resource.
0: So we've talked a lot about linear sprinting, straight line sprinting, but at what point do you start to also do some change of direction stuff?
1: Yeah, I think I'm not opposed to it, but I'm always like in my business, I'm barely given enough time to do linear sprinting. So when you work with a pro team, they, you know, they, like I said, their, their biggest priority is what's happening from a tactical point of view. So we have to work with the head coach and they have to run them through all these scenarios right? So right there, you know, that they're getting some deceleration and and change of direction work. And it's very specific to their sport. So you have to be careful by, you know, adding more to that because that's, you know, the deceleration and the change of direction puts a lot more stress on the joints and, and can really fatigue the soft tissues, right? So I always have to figure out, okay, how much energy do we have to get in more change of direction work. And in an off season, certainly you can do that if they're not playing their sport. But once you get into training camps and into the the main season, you almost have to eliminate that from your training because they're already doing it in practice, right? And then that's why I focus more on linear speed in season. Um but I I I'm very careful about that and I want to understand you know, what truly does the athlete need and what are they, What are they deficient in, in terms of, you know, their daily practice and their competitions. And they're probably doing a lot of change of direction stuff already. So that's why I'm, I'm trying to come in and, and champion more high-speed running because I know that's not necessarily happening in the games and practices.
0: Mm. So as a consultant, how much time are you coming in and working with a team uh, in in general, like what time frame are you working with them for an entire season? Is it several seasons? Is it just one little block? How does it typically work for you?
1: It really depends on the team. It, it depends on the team and it depends on their level of commitment. You know, there's some teams where I'll go and I'll spend a lot of time with them. And, and for the most part, I'm trying to, to train the staff, the internal staff, um, because I'm not going to necessarily be there all the time. And, and that's the most important priority is making sure they all feel comfortable implementing it. Um, And then there are cases where I could do one weekend and try to train the staff, or I could train them, you know, throughout several years, which I've done with teams. Um, But I'm not, I'm not necessarily there 24 seven as an employee of the team. Um, And I prefer that. I don't, I don't want to travel too much and be away from my, my home as well. So a lot of it will be educating the staff to sort of self-implement the protocols that I prescribe. Um, But it, uh, you know, it depends, again, I can name off, you know, almost a hundred different pro teams and they're all different in terms of how they want to structure my involvement. Right. So, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it always, it, it always changes a bit. Um, And obviously I was supposed to be working with some teams before COVID struck. And then that kind of changed it too to more of like online involvement and trying to, to coach and help people through you know virtual sessions. So it's it's always changing, you know, which is nice. I like the variety.
0: Yeah, I think as a consultant, you're essentially teaching the teachers. Uh, that's your probably biggest um, role and most important role. And I think also it allows you as a consultant to rather than come into an organization where you're a part of it. To be a consultant where you can still sit outside of that, you it's much easier and effective to instigate change.
1: Yeah, you don't want to come in and be disruptive. Like you don't want to be the center of attention, because um, that usually doesn't work out well. And I know I've seen cases where people have done that. And and I, I want to come in and be pretty invisible, and just you know um, try to help their existing staff. To get better and to to you know find strategies to make the athletes better and then you, you know you tend to develop a, a a pretty good reputation around being a professional if you do it that way whereas if you go in and you start pointing fingers and blaming people and you know saying they're incompetent it doesn't work well um and is isn't really necessary so there's a reason why they have their own staff is they want people that'll be there you know all the time and be able to help the players and and, and that's not me so um, whatever i can do to make their jobs easier is, is pretty much my big priority is let's let's coach you up so that you feel comfortable and confident that you can handle anything that comes up
0: mm. uh, i've been through your instagram page which is amazing by the way at, at derek m hansen and we'll link all that up in the show notes um, but one of the things on there is a post where you've got your son and you're doing some video analysis stuff on him. And in one of those posts, you mentioned about doing one day a week of high-speed training. What does that look like? What distances and what intensities is that?
1: Um, you know, again, you know, he would have a pretty rigorous schedule and might we might only have like one day off a week or maybe in certain scenarios, like so he has a game on a Friday this week and then we'll have Saturday, Sunday. So I'll probably try to plan something on the Sunday. So he has a bit of time to recover. Um, and then we'll probably go and do, you know, probably anywhere from four to six, maybe four to eight high quality runs over anywhere from 20 to 40 meters. And then I'll say to him, okay, I want you to go fast, but take a little bit off. Like, don't treat this like a competition, treat it like we're going to have some measured level of intensity and and technical intent. So I want him to be as technically sound as possible, which means taking a little bit of intensity off 5% off is probably going to help him and also reduce the risk of injury. So there's no point in going out and training uh, haphazardly and, uh, and getting a muscle strain. So, you know, we're very careful about that one day. Um, but we do know that if we go onto the track and he wears track spikes, um, he's going to be running a lot faster than he does on the field, right? It's just a totally different scenario, but if we do it right and we do it consistently enough, we know that he's not going to slow down. He's not going to detrain. Whereas if I just let him play, cause you know, we, there's one scenario where we took him and the first couple of runs look odd when you put him back on the track, he looks lower, like he's being squished into the ground. And then over from repetition to repetition, he starts to rise a little bit more and, and he gets a little more crisp on his ground contacts because it's just different. But I I like the fact that we can do that once in a while. And he gets that feeling of being very sharp and responsive so that he carries that back to the field. Whereas if you're just on the field the whole time, you just start feeling a little softer and squishier every, every week. Right. And you, and you are detraining at lower velocities. So, um, that's, that's kind of a little technique that we're using and it seems to be working well.
0: Do you do anything on, uh, pelvis control?
1: Um, you know, typically if we're doing the right things mechanically, like with their posture and their limb movements, um, and you know, we focus on being very elastic, I find that we don't have problems with like the pelvis, like usually when the pelvis flops forward anteriorly, it's usually because somebody's reaching or pushing on their stride and doing something unnecessary or doing something inefficient. So as long as they're doing what I'm telling them to do in terms of the technical execution, everything seems to fall in the right place in terms of their you know skeleton and their, their pelvis and all that. So I think that's, that's one of the things you're constantly looking at is, If their foot's landing in the right place and they, they're very responsive, usually things work really well. It's when things start to get sloppy and the fatigue sets in and you're not managing technique, um, then they build bad habits and then, you know, you're kind of setting up a scenario for injury. So, um, yeah, but we don't do any like fancy, you know, core strengthening or anything like that. We just get them to run properly and it kind of solidifies naturally.
0: Yeah. And so in your words, what is running properly?
1: Um, it's just, you know, having the right level of, of lift on the front side of the body and then landing in the right spot closer to underneath the center of mass, um, having an integration between the upper body and lower body so that the upper body's counterbalancing and not allowing too much excessive rotation um, and, and just being able to execute everything with this sort of, subtlety of of like relaxation right if somebody's tense all the time um you know part of running fast is knowing when to turn muscles on and when to turn them off right and that takes a lot of skill and and because it happens so fast we're talking like milliseconds in terms of turning a muscle on and turning it off so i think if you're doing the right work right amount of work giving people enough rest and they're they've trained their body to what I call like have the right muscle coordination, then things are going to work out. It's usually when things start to misfire and fatigue and sloppiness, like I told you uh, about that's when the bad stuff happens, like you see in, in a lot of sports these days is people are rupturing Achilles tendons and ACLs and nobody's touching them. They're just, you know, trying to stop or whatever, or change direction. And you know, their tissues are failing them. And I think that there's a lot to do with, how the brain is interacting with the muscles and the joints. And, you know, you can have faulty patterns and, um, you know, and and just misfires of muscles. And I think that's what happens with, with a lot of these cases. So it's just about, again, repetition of good quality so that that becomes second nature.
0: And running, particularly running fast is very much about rhythm, isn't it? And
1: it's like, being at a dance well. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not something that you think of. It's not like I'm going to run fast and I'm going to, you know, left right left right left right it's like you just you've trained it to a point where you don't have to think about it right if you ever watch um the animal kingdom shows right where the is chasing the antelope like they're not thinking like okay i've got to tighten my core and i've got to you know do nobody they're just thinking go right so you have to get people to the point where everything is almost like autonomic and reflexive because as soon as you start thinking about it things start slowing down and misfiring because it's not meant to be a cognitive process. It's supposed to be subconscious. Right. So that's what, that's how I try and train people. Um, so that they can just perform on the day and not have to worry about things.
0: And so what is the tire analogy?
1: Um, well, there's different ones. Like, you know, I use the analogy of, of like being a ball. Like if you take a, a basketball and you fully inflate it and you throw it down the court and it'll bounce and it'll go quite far. If you take air out of that ball, now it creates more surface area on, on the contact. It's less stiff and it creates more friction on every um, contact with the ground. And we're, you know, that's what we're trying to say with people who are sprinting is we want them to think about vertical force production so that they can, you know, have an adequate rate of force development when they hit the ground and then they they have the stiffness to spring off the ground like that bouncy ball. And the other one was like a bicycle tire. If you flip your bike over and you wanna get that tire moving really quickly, you grab and you pull it initially, and then you start slapping it vertically to keep it going faster and faster and faster. You're not grabbing and pulling it, grabbing and pulling it. So the same thing when somebody runs, their initial push might be three or four tenths of a second, but you want every ground contact to be a tenth of a second or, or faster. So that's why we just, we just tell them, think vertical force production. Don't think about grabbing or pulling. If you think grab or pull, you're actually going to slow yourself down by creating more friction on the ground. So it still goes back to this idea that everything has to be very reflexive, um, and, and, and very quick and short, um, and rhythmic. You're not thinking about like a lot of people, I think they, when they land on the ground, then they have to push hard. And if you wait till you land on the ground to push hard, it's it's over, you're done, right? So you have to think about generating force into the ground and then getting off the ground as quickly as possible.
0: I'll just show you what I was referring to. So just on the screen there, yeah. it's a poster yeah. you put up of the bike tire, and it's the, the second one you're referring to there with the Yeah, uh, just vertical
1: emphasis. Sla- you come down on the tire, don't grab it and pull it, right? It's the same with your running stride, right? Your your hip is on a hinge. So if you go down fast, it goes down and back, right? So you have the horizontal force production as well as the vertical. But if all you think about is grabbing and pulling, you're going to break. You're going to slow things down and and you'll and you and you'll get injured.
0: So. so as we start to wind up, what is the most important points that you would like to get across to anyone listening today? And how would you summarize all this?
1: I think you know, it's nice to be able to have somebody who can teach you this stuff in person to some degree, right? Like having somebody that is coaching you and knows what they're doing. And, and, you know, there's some, there's a few, there's some really good track coaches in Australia too. Like one of my friends is, uh, Mike Hurst. He works out of Sydney and he trained Darren Clark and and a lot of great athletes in the eighties. Um, and he's still training some, some great athletes, um, now. And he's very knowledgeable. And if you can find somebody like that, and then once you find somebody like that, you have to put in consistent work. Um, you can't do you know a weekend of training and expect to be fast. It, it, it could take years of consistently going out and running two to three times per week. Um, and I think that's what gets lost on people is they kind of think like, oh, I want to be fast, but they don't think about the time that goes into developing that and, and being deliberate and, and working on these things technically. And I shoot a lot of video and I, I do a lot of analysis with my own kids. Um, and we're constantly trying to improve and get better. But th- there has to be a persistence and a consistency around your training to, to make you better. And, 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 and I'm trying to get more sport teams to incorporate it as part of their training. But it's, it's, it's very difficult because, it, you know, people only want to do what they feel they're good at. And if you're a soccer coach, you probably just want to spend time on soccer, right? Or a rugby coach, you just, you know, want to spend time on formations and things and tactics, right? So I think we need some people who can go in and teach people how to move properly.
0: So how can people connect with you? And where do you spend most of your time on the internet?
1: I mean, it probably would be on Instagram. Like I initially started with Twitter and then, I don't know, Twitter's can be kind of uh, toxic. But I would it's so say funny you said that
0: I've had the same conversation with guests so much lately.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just a different medium. And it's, it just seems a little more adversarial. And, um, but whereas, you know, I've been spending a lot of time just drawing infographics for um, uh, Instagram and then, you know, having an explanation and, and try to get across some concepts that people can look at and go like, oh, OK, that's I get that. Right. Um, so there's no misinterpretation. So I'd say Instagram, like my, like you said, my my uh, address is Derek M. Hansen. and then I also have one for my courses. It's just at Running Mechanics. Um, so I have those two accounts, and I just try and I try and drop something daily where I think, you know, people would be interested in it and can get some value out of it. Um, and then the websites I have are SprintCoach.com and runningmechanics.com and the sprintcoach.com is mostly educational material and consulting related. Um, whereas the running mechanics is the actual courses in person and virtual courses that I offer. Um, so I'm getting, you know, I'm getting enough interest in both of those areas. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, everybody seems to be giving me pretty good feedback. And if you, if you take any of the virtual courses, we have, um, community chats on this discord app, so people can ask questions about whatever post videos and, and we have a lot of interplay and feedback there.
0: That's great. And uh, that's, of course, we'll link all that up in the show notes and I would just absolutely love to acknowledge you for all the work that you do working with athletes in developing them, particularly around their speed training. And I would like to thank you for your time and being a guest on the mind, your body show. However, before I let you go, it's time for 10 in 10. So I actually didn't get a chance to word you up before uh, we hit record, but throughout the episode, I've been taking some notes. Okay. So And then at the end, I like to do what we call a 10 in 10. So 10 quick questions in 10 seconds. And it's the first thing that comes to mind. So uh, I didn't get your approval beforehand, but is it okay to, to do that?
1: Oh, why not? Let's try it.
0: All right. So we okay, 10 seconds
1: per question or 10 seconds total.
0: Well, we're not really too strict on it. I try okay, to say okay. ten que- 10 seconds per question um if it it might be a one-word response but it's generally supposed to be fairly quick if you do want to go into more detail sometimes we go off on a tangent and it becomes the most best part of the episode but um yeah all right question one uh, number one point one vancouver first thing that comes to mind
1: vancouver uh rain because it's raining now
0: number two running
1: running uh short and fast
0: three movement competency
1: movement competency oh geez uh uh get a good coach
0: (laughs) (laughs) number four sprint transfer to other sports
1: uh definitely yes (laughs) if you sprint it will transfer to other sports definitely
0: number five i had to just double check i couldn't read my own writing reactivity
1: uh very important very important yeah stiffness reactivity yep
0: number six return return to play
1: return to play um i'm gonna say aggressive and ambitious
0: What, what do you mean by that by the way
1: uh most people like i would say conventionally the medical community is very very passive in their approach to return to play where i'm like i'm trying to get them to do sprint drills right away right and and that's uh, as an example, like I'm dealing with the uh, coaches in Germany or the, the medical people in Germany, and they want to do walking and jogging first, where I want them to do sprint drills as soon as possible to restore, to prevent the detraining. And, you know, so that, that's, that's sort of the biggest hurdle. A lot of the time is people being overly conservative and cautious. So there's a perfect
0: example of me going off on a tangent. And I actually, uh, I'm so grateful that we did that because I think that's very um, interesting and important point. Number seven, Zoom.
1: Zoom. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, yeah, great. Um, exhausting sometimes.
0: <laughs> Number eight, writing in particular, writing a chapter for the book.
1: Writing. Um, I would say extremely valuable skill, um, but it it is very. It some people find it very difficult, and sometimes it's hard you know, and I can, I always tell people like, now I understand why writers, you know, ended up being like alcoholics and drug addicts. Right. And stuff like that, because I think it's very hard if you're good at it, it can still be hard, but I think it's a, it's a really valuable skill. If you can write,
0: I'm going to add an eight B here. Would you do it again?
1: The chapters
0: writing. And yeah, r- yeah. If you had an opportunity to write a chapter again, or even your own book.
1: I, yeah, I, I that's something I have to do, but the, the problem, the good thing with the chapter is it's very, it's like a finite, very small thing. Whereas if you say, write a book, it could be a real, you know, real mess because you just think, oh, I got to keep writing more and more. It's got to be a big book. Right. But I think if I were to do it, I'd probably do it in smaller volumes so that it's more digestible for people rather than a big encyclopedia. It's
0: awesome. So, Number nine, high speed running.
1: High speed running, uh, useful. Uh, but risky.
0: And number 10 is a generic question, which I ask everybody. And that is, if you could go forward in time or back in time, which would you go to at what point and why? And you can come back. Some people get caught up and like, I don't want to get stuck in the past or the future, but it's time travel. So you can come back if you choose to.
1: Definitely going back, I think, and and not to change anything, but certainly just to re- relive or re observe certain things, whether it was like when I was a kid or how my parents were or little things like that, you know, um, I think definitely going back, going forward. I don't know. I don't think you want to do that because you were like, you kind of spoil the surprise. Um, so yeah, definitely go back, go back and kind of re experience some things, you know, and some scenarios in your life. Or, or go back like way before I was born and, you know, go to like the 19, you know, Jesse Owens running in the Olympics and just being able to stand on the side of the track or something like that. You know, those types of things would be cool.
0: That would be very cool. Derek, thank you very much for your time today and for being a guest on the Mind your Body Show.
1: Thanks for having me, Jacob. Uh, very nice to meet you and I uh, had a really good time.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in today and joining us on the Mind Your Body Show. I am truly grateful for your presence with us. To find out more, head on over to the mindyourbodyshow.com for all the show notes and my biggest takeaways from this episode, as well as everything else you need to know to mind your body. I'll catch you in the next episode.